Let us open the Holy Scriptures to the book of Esther, chapter 1. Scripture reading is going to be the entire first chapter. And our text will be the first verse. This is the word of God in Esther chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver, upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And next unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Miris, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do? Unto the queen Vashti, according to the law, because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Memukan answered before the king and the princes, 
Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes, when it shall be reported the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. It's a rather strange chapter, isn't it? That we just finished reading. Maybe you can put your finger on it, maybe you have to think about it a little bit, but something feels different than when we read through the other books of the Bible. This was a strange chapter. One thing, the setting is far away from Canaan, and in the royal palace Shushan, the center of an ancient empire. And we're given an elaborate description of royal luxury and excess. A royal party. We're given to see a mighty king showing off his power. We're given a glimpse of his petty anger when his queen doesn't comply with his ridiculous demands of her. We're given a glimpse of the scheming bureaucrats around this king who come up with a ridiculous new law that the king goes along with and publishes throughout his great realm. What a strange scene to occupy the entire first chapter of a book in the word of God. And as we go on reading in the book of Esther, we have some familiarity with Esther. We know the trajectory of the story. We will find that the book continues to be strange. And we will encounter many things as we read on this in this book that offend our biblically shaped moral sensibilities. As we watch a young Jewish woman named Hadassah, who would be named Esther, star in the Persian language, taken into the royal court of this vile, wicked king Ahasuerus and rise to the throne 
Strange things as we will learn about the plot of this man, Haman the Agagite, who wants to exterminate the Jews from the face of the earth. We will see such pettiness in the court of this king Ahasuerus. What what a strange book Esther is. And strangest of all is the fact that in this very first chapter of Esther, we didn't read of God at all. And that's going to be the case as we read chapter 2 and read all the way to the end of chapter 10. Strangest of all, the name of God does not appear even once in this book. Strange is the book of Esther. It stands out as different among the rest of the books of the Bible. And its author, not the human writer, we don't know who the human writer is, And we don't need to know. But its author, the Holy Spirit, intends it to be strange like this. As we will see, in its strangeness stands its significance. That will become increasingly clear as we go forward through the book of Esther. And the Lord willing, that's what we plan to do over the course of the next couple months. We're going to have a sermon series on the book of Esther now. And I'm going to begin it tonight in much the same way I began the series on Ruth with an overview of the book. And so the sermon tonight is not a sermon in in the normal sense of the word. We're not going to expound one text and dig into its meaning deeply and make applications of the main thought of that text. But rather, we're going to look at the book of Esther as a whole. And there's good reason for that. Knowledge and understanding of the background of the book of Esther, the time period in which this history, and it's history, not fiction, This history occurs. Understanding the context will help us better appreciate the message of this book. It will help us understand and better grasp its significance and the powerful gospel message that is communicated in this strange word of God. Though it might not seem to be there on the surface, when you read through the book of Esther on the surface, It seems like a crazy story. When you get beneath the surface, you look at what's there, you'll find the gospel of salvation. You will find the same depth of the word of God that you find in all of the other 66 books of the Holy Scriptures. And so that's what we intend to do as we go forward studying the book of Esther. We're going to see the unique gospel message that it communicates and one that is so very important and relevant for our own time as it is for God's people in every age. We sang a moment ago in Psalter 323. Lord, open thou my eyes to see the wonders of thy law. In the strangeness of this book of Esther, there will be many wonders to see. And this book, as we sang in the last stanza, shall be our counselor and guide in the Christian life. So let's have an overview of the book of Esther. This overview is going to have three parts to it. First, we're going to study the historical setting so that we have a good grasp of when 
Esther took place and what was going on in the world at that time, and especially what was going on among God's people at that time, the historical setting. Then we're going to look at some of the unique features of the book, important themes or features that define the whole book and that we're going to notice along the way as we go through Esther 1 through 10. And then we're going to conclude with the gospel message, that is the central message of the book of Esther, which is going to be the theme for the whole series, the unseen king preserves. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces. Verse 1 is the simple statement of the historical setting of the book of Esther. The days of Ahasuerus. When were these days? What were these days? Where do these days fit in the timeline of covenant history? Well, to answer that question, the order of the Bible books in our Bibles helps us a little bit. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Esther takes place during the post-exilic period. That is, the period after the children of Israel begin returning from the land of their captivity. And so it's properly placed next to Ezra and Nehemiah. But now we understand that the arrangement of the books in the Bible is not a chronological arrangement. After all, Esther, in the timeline of Old Testament history, is near the end. And Job is one of the earliest books of New Testament history. Job likely lived before Abraham in the time of the patriarchs. The Old Testament books are not arranged in chronological order, but they're arranged according to their kind of writing, what we call their literary genre. And so Esther is at the end of what is called the historical section. The books of Joshua through Esther. The historical books that narrate for us the history of God's Old Testament people. And there's an important point here. As strange as the book of Esther is, this is covenant history. And when we understand its strangeness, we'll see its significance. So the setting is the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that points out to us who Ahasuerus is. Ahasuerus was the fourth king of the mighty Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians, really the Medes and the Persians, were two people groups from the region north of the Persian Gulf. Today, that area of the world is Iran. And these Persians built a vast worldwide empire that conquered the Babylonian Empire before it. You can read about that a little bit in the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel 2? Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which Daniel interprets by the inspiration of God. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this massive statue with a head of gold and shoulders and arms of silver and a belly of brass and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that that statue represents history and the kingdoms of this world. And Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonians are the head of gold. But there will come another power that will take over his empire. The shoulders, arms, chest of silver. And that's the Medo-Persian Empire. At the end of Daniel 5, you can read about how Babylon fell 
to the Persians. And Darius the Median, who was a general of Cyrus the Great, the first great Persian king, Darius Darius the Median becomes the ruler of Babylon. So the kingdom, the world power in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther is the silver arms and chest of Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the great Persian empire. And verse 1 tells us a little bit about that empire. And history completely agrees with what the inspired word of God says here. It was a massive empire. It reached as far east as India, what is today Pakistan. And it reached as far west as Ethiopia. It reached all the way over Egypt down to what is today Sudan. It was the greatest empire that had been seen yet at that time. As mentioned a moment ago, the very first king or emperor of the Persians was Cyrus the Great. And we know a little bit about Cyrus because he's an important figure in the Bible. Cyrus the Great was the Persian king that issued that edict allowing the Jews to return home to Jerusalem. Cyrus was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45 verse 1. And that itself is a miracle. It's a miracle because Isaiah prophesied in the days of the kings of Judah, such as Hezekiah, long before Cyrus was even born. And yet, in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 45, verse 1, we read this, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. God would use Cyrus to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah that after 70 years, the exiles of Judah would be able to return home. And so Cyrus is the king that issued that great decree. Cyrus reigned from 559 through 550 BC. And it was in 538 around that he issued that decree. Cyrus was followed by the second Persian king, Cambyses II, who ruled from 530 to 522 BC. And the Bible doesn't say anything about him, so we can pass him by. The third great Persian king was Darius I. And this Darius, you'll find him mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. This Darius is different from the Darius in Daniel 5. Darius the Median in Daniel 5 was likely a general under Cyrus the Great. But Darius I was the third Persian king. And he is the one who consolidated the power of Persia, built up the winter palace in the city of Susa, which in the Hebrew Bible is Shushan, which is the setting of Esther. Then comes the fourth king of Persia, Ahasuerus, the son of Darius I. And Ahasuerus is better known in secular history as Xerxes I. Xerxes I was a temperamental man, a warlike man, a power-hungry man. And everything that we know about him from secular history fits entirely with what we see of him in the book of Esther. So that's the world power in the day of the book of Esther, the days of Ahasuerus. They were the days of the fourth great king of the Persian Empire. But now to wrap up the historical setting, let's look more closely at how Esther 
fits into the covenant history of God's people. We've seen how where Esther fits in world history, but where does it fit with biblical history? And as we said, Esther takes place during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And now what I want to do is walk through the, chron- the chronology very carefully so we can see exactly where it fits. And so we're going to turn to the book of Ezra, and it, it would be helpful for us to have our Bibles open to the book of Ezra. I'm going to try to not take too much time here, but I want to point out some of the highlights so that we can see Esther in its context. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah record about a hundred years of history after Cyrus's decree allowing the Jews to go home. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, we have recorded three times when a group of Jews comes back from the land of their exile, back to Jerusalem. The first was under Zerubbabel, the second was under Ezra, and the third was under Nehemiah. And in Ezra 1 verse 1, we see there recorded the decree of Cyrus the king. And immediately following that decree, the first group of exiles return under Zerubbabel, or as he's called in chapter 1, Sheshbazar, that's his Babylonian name. So Ezra 1 verse 5 and Ezra 1 verse 11 speak about Zerubbabel, Sheshbazar, leading that first group of exiles home. And in Ezra chapter 2, verse 2, we see his name identified there, which came with Zerubbabel. This first group immediately got to work building the temple. As soon as they got home to Jerusalem, which was a city laid waste in ruins, it hadn't been built since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it some 70 years ago, the first thing they get to was building the temple. That was their first desire. That's where their heart was, the worship of God. And Ezra 3 relates that first work of laying the foundation and rebuilding the altar of burnt offering. But soon there is opposition from the pagan peoples that had come to live in that area. Esther 4, or rather Ezra 4 verse 5 tells us that these adversaries frustrated their purpose frustrated their purpose all the days of Cyrus into the reign of Darius I. And so, during the last part of Cyrus's reign, the entire short reign of Cambyses II and into the beginning of Darius's reign, the work of rebuilding was made to cease. Ezra 4 verse 23 says, they made them cease by force and power. And so, Here, at this point in Ezra 4, the work ceases for 14 years, from 534 to 520 BC. When we come to Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we learn that God sent the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to urge the people to resume building. And Zerubbabel, the leader, and Jeshua, the high priest, listen, and they begin rebuilding the temple, and they meet opposition from the local Persian governor, Tatnai. And so, Ezra 6, verses 1 and 2, show us how the Jews 
obtain permission again from the Persian government to resume their building, Zerubbabel sends a letter to Darius I, asking him to search the royal archives for the edict of his great-grandfather Cyrus. And Darius does so, and lo and behold, he discovers that original edict of Cyrus, his great-grandfather, and gives the Jews orders to continue rebuilding. And so, by 516 BC, the temple is finished. And you can read about that in Ezra 6, verses 14 through 15. Now we come to where Esther fits into covenant history. Cyrus decrees the Jews may go home. Zerubbabel leads the first wave of exiles back. They build the temple despite opposition over a period of several years. And now here between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7 is where Esther takes place. You read on in Ezra 7, you find that Ezra 7 begins talking about the second group of exiles who return. The second group returns under Ezra the scribe. And then after that comes the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer of Ahasuerus' son, Artaxerxes, returns. But now Esther fits here. It fits between Esther 6 and Esther 7. In fact, there is a 58 or so year gap between these two chapters. And so if you're one who likes to write in your Bible, you can draw a line between Ezra 6 and 7, and you can write 58 years pass, and you can write book of Esther occurs here. During those 58 years, Darius I dies, and his son, Xerxes I, Ahasuerus, takes the throne. And that's where Ezra, or rather where Esther takes place. Verse 1 tells us that, or rather verse 3 of Esther 1 tells us that in the third year of his reign, Ahasuerus made a feast. So that tells us that likely the book of Esther begins taking place in 483 BC. This is about 55 years after Cyrus issued that decree and about 500 years before the coming of Christ. Now that's a bit of complicated chronology. So before we move on, let me summarize and simplify it. Ezra and Nehemiah are the history of the return of the exiles. Ezra and Nehemiah cover a period of about a hundred years in which three groups return. The first under Zerubbabel, then under Ezra, and then under Nehemiah. And the book of Esther takes place right in the middle of the book of Ezra. Esther takes place after the first group returns, but before the second and third groups return. Esther really is what holds the two halves of Ezra together. In fact, if we didn't have the book of Esther, Ezra would end at Ezra 6. 
And the Old Testament would end at Ezra 6. We're getting a little bit into the gospel message. You know the plot of Esther. Haman. Satan behind him. Plotting to destroy the Jews. There's the great significance of this history. And this is why the historical setting helps us appreciate it. What would have happened if the Haman that we will see in the book of Esther succeeded in carrying out his plan to exterminate the Jews? It wouldn't have just wiped out the Jews in Shushan the palace or in that part of the Persian empire. Tatnai and the other Persian officials and the enemies of the Jews around Jerusalem would have been all too happy to carry out that royal order. And it would have been the end of covenant history. When we see Esther in its historical context, we see the significance of this strange book. Because Esther is between Ezra 6 and 7, covenant history can go on. And that's God's work. That's the historical setting. Now let's turn in our overview to notice a couple of the unique features of the book. When we're looking at a book as a whole, We want to see some of its unique features, things that make it stand out. And we begin with the feature that leaps off the page. And especially leaps off the page if you read through the book of Esther in one sitting. Esther is the only book in the whole Bible, as mentioned in the introduction, that never mentions God. His name doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Esther. Not even once. And not only that, but the book of Esther contains no references to faith. It doesn't contain any record of religious activity. No prayers are ever made to God. No thanksgiving, no giving of God the glory due unto his name. In fact, a surface level reading of the book of Esther leaves you with the impression that this is secular romance literature of a not too, a not too respectable sort. That's just on the surface though. That's striking, isn't it? God is not mentioned at all. The closest thing that we get to any kind of religious activity is fasting. In Esther 4, verse 16, for example, as Esther prepares to go to King Ahasuerus and to try to thwart the plot of Haman, she calls on Mordecai and the Jews in Shushan to fast for her, but no mention is made of prayer. And that's very odd because the only point of fasting is for it to be an aid to prayer. How can you have a book of God's word That doesn't say a word about God. In its strangeness. Stands its significance. We mustn't stumble over this unique feature of the book of Esther. Many good men have. A man no less than Martin Luther passionate man that he was, he was passionate in his mistakes. And he didn't like the book of Esther. And this was one of the reasons. God's nowhere to be found. Let's not stumble over that. 
in its strangeness stands its significance. The Holy Spirit wrote it this way for a purpose. The Holy Spirit had a purpose for withholding the name of God from the pages of the book of Esther. And in fact, understanding this is key to understanding the whole book. This outstanding feature of Esther is perhaps its most important. Because the main doctrine of Esther is God's hidden providence. And the seeming absence of God, in fact, highlights his everywhere presence. And emphasizes the fact that the everywhere present God is often unseen and mysterious in his works and ways. But he is there. He is the unseen king who rules all and preserves his people. The striking absence of God on the pages of Esther underscores his presence. That's the strangeness that has much significance. The unseen God is there in control, governing, directing, moving the plot of this book forward. One of the striking things we're going to see about this book is how often there are coincidences, which really are not. Because the God who is not named, the God who is unseen, the God who is not acknowledged by the characters in this book is there working his hidden hand of providence to govern and direct all things for his end. There's numerous reversals that take place in this book. Things seem to be going one way and then they are suddenly turned around. And what's the explanation for that? Not chance, not fortune, not the agency of man, but the hidden hand of the unseen king who rules all things. The absence of God. The non-appearance of his name stresses to us this fact that even where God is not acknowledged, even where people do not see him, even where there is not a thought about God, such as the far-off palace of Shushan in the Persian Empire, God is there. And God is ruling there. And God's hidden hand is guiding all things there. And when we approach the book of Esther with that understanding, with the eyes of faith open, we will read this book and see it is not some low-quality piece of romance literature. It is not secular literature, but is the word of God that breathes with the very breath of God, that reveals divine truth, that brings comfort, that brings a gospel message, that is instructive. There is wonders to behold in the book of Esther. When we see the unseen king who rules. That is the first and all important feature of the book of Esther. Now a few others that I want to mention a little more briefly. Second unique feature of Esther and this is one we could spend a lot of time on because there has been so much discussion and writing on it. 
is this feature. That Esther leaves us wondering about the spiritual state of its main characters. Particularly Esther and Mordecai, the two Jews who are the main characters in this book. It's simply the case that we're not clearly told whether they're believers or not. Whether they're children of God or not. This has led to a lot of discussion. There are a couple common views. The most common view in the broader church world is that Esther and Mordecai are heroes of faith. And people who hold to this view would point to the courage that Esther especially evidently had when she went into that capricious king, Ahasuerus' throne room. She approached him unbidden in order to save her people. Isn't risking self to save others something very honorable? The other view is that Esther and Mordecai are unbelievers. And this view is based on several things that we see in the book of Esther. Those things, as I said in the introduction, which offend our biblically shaped moral sensibilities. Because the fact is, there's a boatload of immorality in the book of Esther. And the book of Esther doesn't set it before us in order to promote it. It's simply accurately describing how things were at the heart of the Persian Empire. But what do we do with Esther and Mordecai? Neither Esther or Mordecai breathe a word about God, even in very intense trials where you would expect them to turn to God in prayer. Why didn't Esther and Mordecai go back to Jerusalem? That's another question. After all, Zerubbabel and a bunch of other Jews went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But you read through Ezra, or rather you read through Esther, and you don't find a word breathed about Zerubbabel, the temple, Jerusalem, which was being rebuilt at this time. Why is that? Were Esther and Mordecai part of the apostate Jews who had become carnal and secularized and liked the land of their captivity and didn't want to give up their wealth or status there, didn't want to take that hard journey back to Judea, didn't want to start over in a broken down old city, and so they were content to stay in the land of exile? Maybe, maybe. Also supporting this second view that Esther and Mordecai were unbelievers is the fact that both of them engage in morally compromised actions. Mordecai especially. As we'll see in the opening chapters, Mordecai steers his younger cousin Esther into a relationship with this horrible tyrant, Ahasuerus. There's no way to justify that. So what do we do here? Were Esther and Mordecai believers? Were they children of God? In my judgment, the soundest conclusion to come to is, we don't know. And that's not a cop-out because the Bible doesn't tell us. Because that's not the point. That's not what the book of Esther is meant to focus our attention on. The book of Esther is not here to set before us two people who are moral role models. The book of Esther is not about Esther and Mordecai. The book of Esther is about the unseen king who is there and whose hidden hand of providence governs and controls all things in faraway Persia for the sake of his people. The God who is able even to control ungodly men and their ungodly deeds 
for the good of his people. The focus of Esther is God. And so the question of the spiritual state of Esther and Mordecai really is a question we don't need to answer because it's beside the point. Maybe they were unbelievers. You can marshal a fair bit of evidence for that. But it's not conclusive. After all, how many of the Old Testament saints did a lot of really bad things? That's all of us sinners. Think of David and Bathsheba killing Uriah. Think of Lot, saved by the skin of his teeth. And yet they were children of God. Perhaps we can view Esther and Mordecai that way as severely compromised and weak children of God, yet in the land of their captivity, whom God nevertheless was pleased to use. That's possible. Or it's possible they were unbelievers. The Bible just doesn't give us the evidence to come down and say, this is absolutely what it has to be. And so, let's be satisfied with that. As Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. We will concern ourselves simply with what the book reveals. And let be certain questions we just can't answer. So that's the second main feature. The uncertainty about the spiritual state of the two main characters. Another feature is that the book of Esther explains the origin of the Jewish feast Purim. The feast that was started to celebrate deliverance from the plot of Haman. And that calls our attention to something we'll see throughout the whole book of Esther. The prominence of feasting. The book begins with the feast of Ahasuerus, that sumptuous feast for his nobles and for his people in his capital city. The book climaxes with the feast that Esther has for Ahasuerus and for Haman. And the book ends with that feast, Purim, the Jews celebrating their deliverance from that wicked enemy. An important truth to be drawn from that is, that's where... The work of the unseen king and his hidden hand of providence leads his people to joy and deliverance. A couple more. Esther depicts earthly power and the kingdom of man in such a way that it exposes it for what it is. And we can even say satirizes it a little bit, makes fun of it. Maybe that struck you in the first chapter, and we'll look at this more in the next sermon. How elaborate the explanation of this long, long feast of King Ahasuerus is. How petty and whimsical this king's actions are when he is angered by his queen's refusal of his ridiculous request. We have exposed here what the kingdom of man looks like. It puts on a show of power, but it is corrupt at heart. Vain. Fragile. And there's going to be application there. In this kingdom of Persia, the silver shoulders, chest, and arms, we have a picture 
a type of the anti-Christian kingdom. And in a certain way, this Ahasuerus points to the Antichrist as well. And so as we look at the ugly world power that Persia was, we'll be instructed about the kingdom of man, its nature, and its culmination in the anti-Christian kingdom. Finally, God's justice which triumphs always in a world full of injustice. That's a theme in Esther too. A recurring pattern in Esther is reversal. And perhaps the greatest reversal you can think of is the tall gallows that Haman builds for Mordecai, but Haman himself ends up being hanged on those gallows. There is a reversal there. And that conveys to us a theme of justice. Even though it seems in this world that the wicked and the powerful triumph, God sees to it that justice is done and the evil, by evil are slain. And the traps of the wicked end up falling back on them. The hidden king, as he preserves, also does justice for his people. We finish with the gospel message, which really ties these major features that we've looked at, ties them together, and gets us to the point of the book of Esther. In its strangeness stands its significance. We've seen that, how the absence of God on its pages underscores His everywhere presence in the events recorded upon the pages. How the non-appearance of the name of God shows us that though he is unseen, yet he is there. And he is the king who rules all things, who is absolutely sovereign. And he exercises that absolute sovereignty over men, over nations, over kings, over wicked deeds and wicked edicts. He exercises that universal absolute sovereignty for this great purpose. To protect and to preserve and to keep safe and to save his little flock. His people who in comparison with the mighty titans of the world are powerless. Powerless before these wicked powers that be. And yet the hidden king rules the powers that be. For the preservation of his people. We already noticed that when we put Esther in its historical context. The great plot of Haman that's at the center of the book of Esther, his plot to exterminate the Jews, that plot didn't originate with Haman's wicked heart and deranged mind. It originated with the adversary of God's people, Satan himself. Esther is an important episode in the ongoing battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Haman's plot is an Athaliah-like plot. Remember the wicked queen Athaliah? Who tried to destroy all the seed royal in Judah. And behind that was Satan trying to end the line of David so that Christ couldn't come. That's what we have here too. Satan stands behind Haman. 
And now when God's people are very vulnerable from an earthly perspective, they're under the titanic authority and power of this Persian empire, Satan moves in those places of power. He moves in the court of this whimsical and carnal king. Satan is behind the rise of this man Haman, who is the enemy of the Jews, and Satan is at work. He wants the Jews exterminated, destroyed. He doesn't care so much about Mordecai and the others in Shushan. Satan has his eye on faraway Judea. And Zerubbabel, that descendant of David in whom the royal line had been preserved. And upon God's people there. And Satan wants to use this edict of the king of Persia to wipe out the covenant people in Jerusalem. But the unseen king. Is there in the places of power. The unseen king is the one who rules among the mighty of the earth. And the unseen king is revealed in the book of Esther. As he works to thwart this device of Satan. To save his people. And to safeguard that line of Christ. God's faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. Is displayed here. In the book of Esther. In a similar way as we saw it in the book of Ruth. Remember how the whole book of Ruth was about God's covenant faithfulness. And how all of that history centered on the Davidic line from which the Christ would come. You remember what the very last word of Ruth was? David. That's what everything was aiming at. That's what God was doing in all of that history. Bringing David from whom Christ would come. Well, you look at the very last word in the book of Esther. Chapter 10, verse 3. Speaking of Mordecai, after he had been elevated to a great position in the Persian government, we're told that Mordecai was seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. Regardless of what Mordecai's motivations were, there's significance there. That's how God used him, and that's how God used Esther. For the sake of the seed. The seed, which Galatians 3.16 says, is Christ. And the seed, which is all those who are united to Christ, the children of Abraham, by faith. The book of Esther's ultimate significance is peace. To the seed. That's. Where this history. Leads. And in this history. The unseen king. Preserves. And speaks peace. To the seed. And that will be the message. That comes to us. As we go forward in this book. And see the unseen king at work. Peace. To his people. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this strange book of Esther, which is so rich. We've started scratching the surface tonight, and we pray that in coming weeks, Thou wilt show us the wonders of this portion of Thy Word. That with the eyes of faith, we may see the more clearly 
Thou who art the unseen king, who rules over all, and who preserves thy church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.